this is the Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams podcast. I'm your host, Matt Perdue. Hey guys, welcome back. This is Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams podcast, and it's the podcast where we talk about <laughs> where we talk about all things change. Most of the time, it's going to be about exercise and health and nutrition. And sometimes it's just going to be about change. I think the the thing that is fascinating to me my whole life has been that you have uh, people always desperately want something. And they also desperately want to avoid something. And what's fascinating to me is when it's nothing but nuts and bolts, right? X's and O's. Just do certain things or don't do certain things and you'll be fine or you'll get what you want or you'll most likely avoid what you don't want. But what's fascinating is that they still don't do it or they'll start and then they'll stop. It's almost as if they can do it for a little while, but then they need a rest for a couple of years and then they come back and they try again. And it's, and it would be one thing if it was, they need, you need to be able to scale up, you know, the top of Mount Everest and live there. But you don't need to do that at all. You just kind of need to walk up the steps, just be able to walk up the steps. So that's fascinating to me. So even though, like I've mentioned that my degree was in exercise physiology, sports psychology was my favorite course that I took. And again, it could have been because of the professor. But it was interesting to me because... Everybody that's in athletics desperately wants to be a winner. And you have some that desperately want to be the best. They want to be the best player or they want to be the best of all time. It's like from the movie The Natural with Robert Redford where he was Roy Hobbs. And he's like, they're like, well, what do you want? And he said, I want when I walk down the streets, people to say, There goes Roy Hobbs, the best there's ever been. And that was a compulsion within him. And what I think, but what was really interesting about sports psychology is that you had all these players that were just dramatically gifted. Speaking of freaks of nature, NBA players are the freakiest of all the freaks because it's not just that they are so explosive and can change direction so quickly and they're so fast and so quick. It's a fact that they're like six seven and they can do all that stuff. My uncle was six five and he moved like a giraffe. It was just understood that if you're six five, you're just gangly and uncoordinated. You're not very athletic, that you need to be like five eight to be super athletic, or five ten, or maybe six foot tall is about the upper limits. But these guys are giants and they're moving like they're moving like they're, you know. Five five eight. That you can change when and some you get somebody like LeBron out there and he's like six nine and two hundred and fifty pounds. Actually, he may be more than that. But he's moving, cutting back and forth like me when I was twelve years old, and it's it's just that's crazy. And look, I get it. You're thinking, Matt, you could never move like LeBron. Cutting back and forth and jumping are two different things. A 12-year-old can cut back and forth like the best of them. Anyway, moving on, 
So you have these people that are freak of natures and they also want to be the best, but then you just end up with a few that are dramatically better than everyone else. And how does that work? How do you end up with the LeBrons and the Jordans and the Kobe's? These guys that get to the top and they stay at the top. Well, it's not because they're that much more athletic than others. I mean, LeBron does have a lot of advantages, but no more than Dwight Howard or um, Kevin Garnett. Of course, Kevin Garnett was good for a long time. But I don't know that Kobe or Jordan physically were that much better than maybe the top thousand NBA players that have ever played. Now, people would definitely argue with me because that's all dudes do is argue about sports. But how much better they are as far as their production than all those other guys, that's what's astronomical. And that's where the psychology comes into play. And that's why it was compelling to me how this could be the case. And so most of the time when we talk about things, even when we're dealing with exercise and health and nutrition and wellness and all that sort of thing, we're going to deal with the psychological components and concepts that auger us down into not moving or which compel us to move. Anchors, freaks, and dreams, that's what it's all about. But I want to talk about the science today of what exercise does for the body. With this whole pandemic, science has been taking on a whole new a whole new level of relevance because you have people that believe everything Fauci says, everything on the news, and you have people who don't believe any of it. And both of them are arguing science. Anti-vaccinators and pro-vaccinators, they're all arguing science. And part of that has to do with the fact that I think that nobody really considers the news you you get necessarily trustworthy and it has well, mostly it has to do with the fact that like when i was a kid we had three networks so you had an hour of local news and then a half hour of world news a half hour the whole world's news right so there was no you just gave headlines that's all there was to it you only had a half hour to do it and whether it was Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, they all said the same thing. But now you have an infinite number of venues which you can get news, and it comes out instantaneously. It's always coming out. It's just one minute, it'll be one thing, and then something will break, and another, and it'll come out something different the next minute. And so how do you get people to actually pay attention to what you're saying if you're the news? Well, you hit a tribal button is all you do something sensational and what's going to get me to hit a button is for me to read something that um, causes a fear response. And so I want to click on it so I don't miss something that I may regret or it'll be something infuriating where somebody says something that I disagree with and it makes them look like, they're almost petty or that they're making fun of my people, you know, that sort of thing. If they're making fun of my people, then I'm going to read it and I'm going to be like, yeah, this guy's putting that person in their place. So that's the kind of what news is these days. It's not really news. It's just entertainment and uh, stress. That's what I would call it. 
But science has taken on a whole new level. And what I want to talk about today is the actual science of how exercise affects the body. Now, when people work out, I think there are three main reasons that people work out. Number one, health. Number two, fitness. And number three, cosmetic change. Now, that's not popularity order. You know, clearly, the number of people at a gym that are there for their health reasons versus um, trying to look better. Mm, we'll say they may be there for both, but one's more important than the other, if you know what I'm saying. Well, you could break fitness down into two. Okay, so health is just going to be health. Fitness is really two components. It's conditioning, like cardiovascular, cardio. And when somebody says, I want to get in shape, this is what they mean. And then there's strength. Somebody wants to get stronger. Now, there are a lot of other components or variables that you could make fitness, power, speed, flexibility, mobility, agility, all these sorts of things you could make into fitness. But I think the two main ones that people are looking to improve is their conditioning and their strength. And then the third one, cosmetic change, I think it's really two things. It's fat loss and muscle development. Those two things, because those are the one, those are the two things that you have control over when it comes to exercise. You know, whether or not you can regrow your hair or improve your skin or, um, you know, you can't fix your teeth, you know, all these sorts of things that exercise, there's no really correlation, but muscle development and fat loss are two directly correlated. And that's what um, exercise will do. So we're going to talk about the science for all these. I attempted a couple of times to create a podcast with all of these in them. And I just, every time got to well over the half hour time frame that I'm trying to give myself. And so I've just decided that I'm going to create a different podcast for each one. And today's going to be about health. Now, let me just preface, this is my liability statement, that I am not a medical professional. I'm not licensed by the state of California or any other state. <laughs> so take everything I say with a grain of salt and check in with your own doctor. That being said, this is the information that I actually have studied or read. So I'm regurgitating information here. And this is going to be the science of why exercise or how exercise affects your health. So if you look up the definition of health, um, you'll get different things. and um, But one of the main ones is, is that it's a um, resistance to disease. That would be one aspect. And disease would be any type of acute infection. Uh, like COVID-19 would be an example of an acute infection. Um, any other type of, you know, bacterial infection, that sort of thing. It's something where something is attacking your body and the state of your health can your body overcome this illness? Like the pneumonia, somebody's got pneumonia. If they're young, yeah, they'll probably have no problem. If they're old, it's questionable. Can their body deal with this? What health are they in? And the other one would be a chronic illness, and that would be like some type of metabolic syndrome. And those things we would consider chronic illnesses would be heart disease, cancer would be one, diabetes, the things that when you go to the doctor, your doctor's going to jump on you about your cholesterol is too high or whatever. And these things can be directly affected by exercise. But here's the thing. If you're dealing with an acute infection, 
I don't suggest that you go work out and nor would your doctor probably. However, this thing is one interesting thing because at what level would you say that it, at what point would you say I'm dealing with an acute viral infection versus my body is always fighting some type of pathogen in the body. It's all my white blood cells are always chronically going throughout and they're, they're figuring out if something is trying to invade the body and if it needs to attack it or needs to produce antibodies. It's always happening. It's continuous. So the, whether or not you could say it's not a black or white statement, let me put it that way. So I will use an example. When we, I was in high school, it was, it was convention. If you woke up and your sore, your throat was sore or you were congested or you felt like low energy, you felt like I'm fighting an illness that you went to wrestling practice. You didn't lay out of wrestling practice because it would, it would, you would feel better afterwards. And it was like 99% of the time. And I think that had something to do with you went in there and your body was starting to be a, your immune system was compromised. But when you did the exercise, you stimulated your body and then it fought off the, the illness. Now, if you had already gone through like say stage two of the illness and you already had a fever, then no, you didn't, <laughs> that's, you didn't want to go to practice because then that would really knock you out. So that would be an example of an acute illness and exercise. So one, if you think you are fighting something, don't work out. Maybe if you feel like you're a little run down, a, a, a brief workout may stimulate your immune system and you'll feel better. But again, that's not medical advice. Now, chronic illness here, this is another one. Because when you talk about chronic, we're talking about things that have taken not just weeks or months. We're talking not years or decades to develop. So there's not a lot of empirical evidence that exercise is going to help cancer after it's metastasized. Like if it's already spread throughout your body, it doesn't appear that exercise really does anything. Or if you already have, you know, clogged arteries in your in your, um, you know, you have like 80% occluded arteries in your heart. It doesn't appear that exercise to, as, is going to alleviate or solve that. However, in the decades or years leading up to the point of, of the, the symptomatic or the maturation of these illnesses, it very, very much shows that it could it's hard to directly correlate things or causate things, let's say, when they take decades to, to show up because there's also, a, you know, the genetic factor of certain things like heart disease or cancer, cholesterol or whatever. But you could say that if you had, um, you would, your body is producing or misreplicating cancer cells years and years and years before you did start to develop tumors or indefinitely before it metastasizes. Now, obviously depends on what the cancer is and I'm not an oncologist. So there you go. Okay. See, the other thing is, is that this is where you would say that health is not just resistance to disease, but it's also a body that is efficient at its normal physiology. And that would be a direct thing that you would go to the doctor about would be what, what is your blood sugar or what is your blood pressure? And 
uh, exercise would directly affect both of those. And uh, the way it would affect those would be when you chronically exercise, this or therapeutically, let's just use chronically we'll use in maybe the negative and then therapeutic would be in the positive. Either way, it's something that consistently happens. If I consistently therapeutically exercise, then what's shown is that the a function of my cardiovascular system improves so much to the point of I have speci specifics that the amount of blood with each you know, beat of the heart that gets pushed out increases as I uh, get more and more shape. So either we call that the stroke volume. So that either means that my heart needs to beat less or um, I can, it means that it doesn't have to beat as hard either way. I mean, it can be maximal or relative. Um, also the ejection fraction is, it, it uh, ejection fraction is the amount of blood that gets sucked back into the heart. So when it squeezes, right, the blood pushes, squeezes out. It's either going to go into another chamber or it's going to go into an artery. And then when the the heart reinflates, valves close, so the blood won't get sucked back into the chambers. What it appears that after therapeutic exercise, that the function of the valves increase. They either get tighter or stronger or something. So the amount of blood that gets sucked back in the heart decreases. So it becomes even more efficient. And peripherally, you would say that you your, your vessels are vasodilate, so they get bigger because it's trying to get blood and nutrients and oxygen to and back from the cells when you're exercising. You get uh, more vascularization, so there's more blood vessels that get produced all these sorts of peripheral things that take place. Another one would be insulin sensitivity. So one of the biggest things now when you go to the doctor is what's your A1C? And that's going to be over the course of time, how is it, if, is your blood sugar elevated chronically? And that's oppressive to the body. And obviously with COVID, that was one of the main risk factors was you know, your age and were you diabetic? Those are the two big ones. And just your body's ability to fight off things if you're in a, if you're if you're not able to keep your blood sugar down is, is systemic it's a systemic problem and it's very clear that um, therapeutic exercise will increase not only your insulin sensitivity that means at the all your tissue cells how much insulin does it take to get the blood sugar from the blood into the cell well if they're not very sensitive, then it's going to take more insulin. Therefore, your pancreas has to work harder and harder and harder. But if it doesn't take very much, then the pancreas doesn't need to work near as hard and you get a pancreas that lasts longer, if that makes sense. Now, it also seems to work at the organ site so that you would say the amount of blood sugar to produce a so when your blood sugar goes up, your, your pancreas will produce insulin. But with exercise, what it appears that the pancreas becomes more efficient. So the blood sugar doesn't have to go as high before it starts producing insulin. So it works on both ends. Now, finally, there's something that we would call inflammation in the body. And this is directly related to 
chronic illness or metabolic syndrome, that there seems to be a systemic inflammation in the body. And depending on whether or not you're smoking or doing something else or your genetic factors, this is where it starts to localize. The inflammation starts to localize. So if you if your uh, your family history is heart disease and it tends to localize in your arteries and and it becomes symptomatic because you know it's one thing if you have a blood vessel go out on you know i don't know that's a, a, a less important organ maybe like the appendix <laughs> but if it goes out on your heart or in your brain that's not good and so that's why the inflammation in the in the cardiovascular system or the, the circulatory system is, is, is such a, a bad thing. And the inflammation that takes place in people's digestive system is obviously one of those things because it seems like everybody's got some type of IBS or um, colitis or diverticulitis or Crohn's disease or whatever. It just seems like that's really prevalent um, in, especially in the last 10 years. And what we're just noticing is, is that you could have a systemic, that means throughout the whole body, inflammation, but it, it just shows up symptomatically in different areas depending on what your your genetic predisposition would be. Well, the, the issue is, is that we don't want to exercise so that Crohn's disease will go away. We don't, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that that's the case, but what we want to do is we want to reduce inflammation throughout the whole body so that wherever it shows up in your body, that it won't show up as, as uh, painfully or as acutely. And so this is, this is, this is my opinion. Now the, I've read some journal entries and um, you would call them scientific studies that get published where they have to go through the whole scientific method where they have a hypothesis, right? They study it. It's, it's either double blind, a placebo version but the, what you're doing is you're controlling the variables so that you can repeat it and see that you get the same result over and over again. And that was kind of what we would call science or empirical evidence. So the, the, there, there seems to be a, a, an, excuse me, there seems to be an anti-inflammatory effect of exercise and they don't actually know why now, Okay, so that's not necessarily true, but it's not as obvious as um, a, a type two lever. You know how a type two lever works, but it what it appears is. Okay, let me take a step back so I can not stumble over my words. When you have an injury, your body goes through three phases of healing. Phase one is inflammation. Phase two is proliferation, and phase three is remodeling. Now, what that means is, let's say you roll your ankle and you have a sprain, and immediately you have pain, and then inflammation and swelling. So all these are part of that, that first part of, of the um, healing process. And it seems obvious. You're going to have all these things happen because your body does not want you to move that joint anymore. So you're going to have pain and it's telling you, you don't even move it. We don't know what's going on yet. Don't move it. It's going to swell. Now swelling could be the rationale of swelling. You know, you could go a lot of ways with that. One is just, you just broke a bunch of stuff and it's leaking, 
But the other thing was you get an increase of swelling so that it will immobilize the joint. Because the more a joint swollen, the less you can move it, right? And then you have the inflammation and the heat. And so what's happening is, is the body's going into emergency phase. And I'll just see if I can run through this pretty quickly. And then what happens is it sends all these signals and chemicals to go out and and start to tear apart or eat up all the damaged cells so that it'll kind of like cannibalize itself. And then proliferation phase is then it sends out healthy cells. And then the remodeling phase takes those healthy cells and makes them functional. And the inflammation phase, depending on what's going on, should be with an acute injury only a matter of days. And the proliferation phase could be between days and weeks. And the remodeling phase, depending on how devastating the injury, like if you completely separate something like a a tendon, well, then that's different. It's going to take years sometimes to completely complete health and function to that body part. But let's say you just sprained your ankle. It could take a week's. And so if you go to the doctor, you sprain your ankle and he says, look, you didn't tear it in two it's got a, it's a sprain. So there's a little bit of a tear, but it doesn't need surgery. I'm going to um, give you some ibuprofen and ice and go see your physical therapist. And you're going to go through six weeks of physical therapy. So there's a lot of discussion now about whether or not you should take ibuprofen uh, because you're blocking a signal, which is your normal healing process. And I'm not going to get into that because I don't completely understand it. But what I will say is that if your doctor tells you to do physical therapy, please do it. I've got to deal with so many clients that didn't go do physical therapy on an injury and now they just got issues and I have to train around it. So I'll just put it this way. The best time to do physical therapy is right after the injury. And so that's why the remodeling process is so important. And here's what happens. Your body in the proliferation phase will like lay down a bunch of collagen and elastin and other materials And that's going to be the substructure to produce healthy tissue. Well, here's the thing. My my cousin, he's, uh, he, I guess it's called knitting. He knits. (laughs) I don't know. He weaves. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you call it. But he'll take bulk wool just to, where they shear the sheep, they clean it, they wash it. And then they just, it's just a big pile of wool. And then he'll spin it together to make threads. And then he'll take the threads and he'll knit them together, weave them together, depending on, you know, the process. So think of it like this. In the proliferation phase, they shave the sheep and they just wash all the wool. And there it is. It just throws it in a bowl. So what happens is, is if I sprain my ankle, my body's just going to throw a bunch of wool right there in my ankle. Well, if I don't do anything, if I don't do my physical therapy, then it's just going to harden and it's going to be uh, scar tissue and it's going to be unhealthy, dysfunctional scar tissue. And so if I roll my ankle again, the likelihood of me having a worse injury is very high. It's just going to rip like the San Andreas fault. But if I spin that collagen through physical therapy and then I weave it together, then what I have is, is something that's not going to tear in the future. It's healthy. Because you can take a ball of that wool and you just pull it and it'll just pull right apart. But if you spin it into just, um, uh, I guess you would call it not a cord, into a thread, 
then you could take either end of it and keep pulling it and eventually it'll pull apart. But if you spin it and then weave it or knit it, it's not going to. It will take a machine to pop that thing in two. And that's the way the healing process works in your body. Um, all that said, wow, I've eaten up the time again. <laughs> this is what this is this is my theory about how it's working is that when you have inflammation in your body and you exercise, then you're sending your body through a healing phase because you give all the inflammatory signals. But then you also send forth all the anti-inflammatory chemicals that remodel and um, turn uh, sore muscles or um, torn muscles or damaged um, cells and then create healthy ones. Well, that's what we're doing. If we, if I have chronic inflammation in my digestive system or my circulatory system, then I'm giving an opportunity to clean out the inflammation and bring in healthy tissue and have it remodeled correctly. So that's the theory of producing anti-inflammatory um, local areas from the systemic effect of exercise. All right, so I will quickly try and sum up here when we talk about health, how exercise affects our health. One, um, it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence of it protecting you from acute infection, but what it does is that it increases the efficiency of your normal physiological processes. It increases your insulin sensitivity and it reduces inflammation in your body. And I think it would be great if they would come up with a lot of you know, some new scientific studies covering how exercise would do that. But until then, um, that's that's we'll just take that. We'll call it Matt's theory and how exercise affects the body. All right, guys, thanks for joining me. Uh, the next one will be about fitness. Hope for you to join me then. This has been Anchors, Freaks and Dreams.